Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. So I think healing, there is an element of that, which is I'm okay with who I am. I think I'm valuable because I'm valuable. Not because of what I do, not because of what people say about me. I mean something to this world and to the people around me. Welcome to our latest episode of On Coaching, where myself and two other Novus Global coaches sit down with therapist, Dr. Regina Chow Trammell, to talk all things coaching and therapy. Dr. Trammell is a licensed clinical social worker and is an associate professor in the Masters of Social Work program at Azusa Pacific University. She's an avid mindfulness practitioner, having her academic research published as well as a TEDx talk, and now her just released book mentioned in the show notes. As coaches, we often get asked what the differences between coaching and therapy. In this episode, we honor both by diving into their distinctions as well as some of their similarities. We also talk about how they can work synergistically for the main goal of healing, wholeness, and moving forward to create a beautiful life. We're so grateful to have Dr. Trammell with us today. Enjoy the show. Okay, so we are very excited for this episode. We have three wonderful guests. We have Amanda Jaggard. Say hi, Amanda. Hello. Amanda is one of our best coaches. She's also a co-founder of the Meta Performance Institute and is also my biological sister. And then we also yes. have we also have David Gerber as in baby food. Say hi, Gerber. <laughs> Hello. Gerber is one of our top performing coaches as well and a faculty at the Institute and was the first coach that I ever hired. And then last but not least, we have Regina Chow Trammell. Say hello. Hello. We're happy that you're here and you heard about her at the top of the episode. So the thing that we're talking about today, which I'm really excited about because Regina is a... Is it fair to call you? I know you're a clinical social worker. Can we call you a clinical psychologist? Are those two different things? They're two different licenses, but... Maybe the broader category is psychotherapist. Wonderful. So she is a classically trained psychotherapist, has her master's PhD, all the things. And we're talking about not only just coaching and therapy, putting those side by side and seeing the synergies and how they're different from each other, but also all the different ways that people can invest in themselves to grow or to heal or whatever uh, language you want to use around that. And we actually have some questions about that language specifically. But first, uh, Regina, I, I want to talk a little bit about therapy and even just like the stigma, I, I find, and, and I'd love for you to share, because uh, my guess is there's shifts in that, but give us a brief history around how people have related to therapy, if, if you don't mind, for the last, let's say, 50 years or so. Wow. No, no pressure. <laughs> wow, this is a whole therapy history class, but that's a good question. Okay, so I'm just going to tap out to like the 1970s, if that's Great. cool. Great. I guess that's 50 years now. Yeah. I guess, right? So if yeah. you think about like old Woody Allen movies, that's a good kind of fair yes. picture, right? Like you go to your psychoanalyst for mm -hmm. therapy. It's really expensive. Only people in, right? Like, I don't know what side of New York. Yeah. New Yorkers love therapy. So like the Upper East Side of New York or the Upper West Side or whatever Upper it was. East side. Maybe now it's like Bushwick or so, I don't know. So yeah. That was very classical therapy, very monolithic, kind of homogeneous population. And then in the 80s, it starts becoming more of a managed care model of therapy. So we start seeing some insurance companies cover therapy because of managed care through the 90s. And then managed care becomes astronomically uh, corporate and um you know, cost savings and all that good stuff. So then we start seeing kind of more of these solution-focused, really quick, brief therapy models in like late, mid-90s, early 2000s. And now I think with the new generation, maybe younger millennials, Gen Z, because of the multiple mental health challenges and growing mental health issues and just broader awareness, I think we're seeing a lot more corporate tech companies come into the therapy space. But all along has been this kind of, so there's always this talk about like a public versus a private model. I don't know how nerdy, you asked the history question, so I'm going to get a little nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this, this is my intro to psych class. There's like, there's, <laughs> there's public versus sectarian, private, you know, anyways, all these different systems. But mental health is really kind of 
tracked along with kind of public versus private funding. And one can argue, and I think this is really relevant for us living in LA, is that a lot of what we consider mental health therapy happens in institutions like the prison system because of homelessness, like school settings now, it's becoming more popular. So this idea of kind of the private practice investment model, I think is really important. I think that helps sustain the discipline and sustain the practice, just like it does for coaching, because I think we innovate better in a private therapy kind of space. I really see us kind of, you know, holding that space together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And one of the things I've always thought about is, or at least one of the things I've heard is it used to be the stigma attached to it. Like, you know, if we think about our parents, yeah. if they did go to therapy, they didn't talk about it. And, you know, one of the things that Amanda and I's parents would say oftentimes is, you know, we didn't have any of these tools that you have now readily available. And my guess is the tools maybe were out there, but they were either reserved for the affluent. Yeah. It meant that something was wrong with you. Like yeah. if you, if you went, you, you went to therapy because something was wrong. And I think that, or any like is wrong and you couldn't deal with it on your own. You needed help. And there was a weakness involved in that. Real quick. I'd love for each of us to talk a little bit about our history with like the helping profession and not necessarily vocationally, but on the receiving end. And I'll go first real quick. I remember we, we had a school counselor in elementary school that maybe I went to once or twice and she was super great. I lost in the spelling bee. She was the one waiting for me backstage. She gave me a big hug. She wrapped her big arms around me, just collapsed into her after I misspelled the word beagle. <laughs> um, you know, but then I saw a therapist in college. My roommate thought that I was depressed and I went to, to see Mr. Delort. And sat on his couch and he said, why are you here? And they said, my roommate thinks I'm depressed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so did that, you know, and then, and then got into, I think more traditional counseling. I think during my divorce, I went through counseling and then I got into 12 step program, which is kind of its own form of group therapy. And then I have a therapist now. And then of course got into coaching and received coaching and then got certified in coaching. So that's my journey in terms of, so there's 12 step, there's counseling, there's coaching, there's all the things. Amanda, what's your story real quick? Yeah, I think really got introduced when we were at our college and it was free. And we took a counseling class, actually, a pastoral counseling class. And the professor was like, oh, I want some of this for myself. And so it was like, it's free for the college. Like, yes, sign me up. And I think it was a lot of my own issues of uh, feeling depressed and dealing with family of origin things. And then in and out, maybe of therapeutic type spaces, but after having multiple miscarriages, knowing that I needed to learn how to deal with grief. And so specifically going to therapy for that. And then, uh, a lot of couples and marriage therapy continued to be in like, uh, a trauma informed therapy has also been a piece of that with EMDR and brain spotting and some breath work and, that kind of thing. Um, and still I'm in therapy and then family therapy for me and my kids, um, for them to also be in therapy. We've been going together as a family probably for a little over three years. Nice. Very good. Then Gerbs, how about you? So, um, in terms of like the, the formal therapy space, I would say the first time I did really anything formally was, I want to say like maybe 2012 or something like that. I did a one-off session of EMDR therapy um, cause back in 2008, I'd been mugged pretty violently. And, um, and it's funny as it took me like three or four years to actually ever do any therapy around it, which was interesting. Cause I thought, um, I thought I was fine, <laughs> which was fascinating looking back on it, thinking I was fine, but I mostly have done it the last like 10 months or so. I've done a lot of talk therapy, a lot of breathwork therapy. Oh, equine therapy. That was when it was, was kind of in the, in the middle of it. So I've done equine therapy in the last 10, 10 months, but I, I did actually did some equine therapy even over the last five or six years, which has been, I think it's, it's one of my favorite things. Yeah. And just a favorite reference for that, for our listeners, that's like the horse whisper. That's where like you go in and you are with a horse and there's the intuition there. And then there's an interpretive element of where whatever the horse's empathy is revealing about you and how to grow and heal that way. Yeah. So that's been, that's been, I think the, the kind of like context for my, my experience with therapy. Yeah. And then Regina, I'd love to hear, cause you know, you're not just a practitioner. My guess is you're also a, a receiver. What's been your journey with that? Yeah. So kind of similar to yours, Jason, I had a school counselor that helped me navigate my first breakup. And I just remember like running to her office in high school and like falling apart and then just kind of the light bulb went off like, wow, there's people like this who are 
working and helping. She was such a great help and a source of strength. So that kind of started my journey. And then obviously, you know, through college and grad school, we have to do what's called supervision. That's basically therapy throughout our training. And that's been really valuable learning why I'm attracted to this field, right? What are the you know, no therapist is a blank slate. We all come with, and, and why we as therapists and coaches want mm-hmm. to help people. And there's some weirdness around that. So unpacking that, and then yeah. there just is, you know. And, you know, um, actually, would you mind? I would be thrilled to hear, since you are absolutely a certified expert on this, uh-oh. I'd be really curious. Well, you know, I mean, you teach at APU and all the things. And so I really would be curious as you interact with people in the helping mm-hmm. profession, with whether the social workers or psychologists or counselors or therapists or coaches, and we have our institute where we're training coaches as well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are the things that people who are attracted to that profession need to watch out for? Yeah, that's a loaded question, but I think we're attracted to these fields, right? Because, okay, so I'll just bring up a theory if that's okay. So Freud always talks about kind of the unconscious and conscious drives. And I really do think that's kind of whatever you want to say about Freud, that's the genius of Freud that he brings, Um, but that we're always trying to do what's called a repetition compulsion. So we repeat kind of the wounds that we have. So a lot of us come into the helping professions because we've had some wounds. A lot of my students will say, well, I've, I had a social worker for a bad social worker or maybe a good social worker. And so, you know, they've had some exposure or they've had some family dynamics or some kind of mental health issue. The well ones I would say are, you got to watch out for the well people because they be like, why would you? No, just kidding. Why would you choose this? But um, (laughs) no, I think there is some of that. I just think we're attracted to people because people are complex right? Like people are endlessly fascinating. So there's something about our life experiences that helped us to understand that complexity. And so I think that's why I'll just say personally, that's why I'm in. I just think people are endlessly fascinating, endlessly complex. You try to shove people to Enneagram types and it's just, it's going to go wonky at some point where we... What? I mean, you can't just cram people into nine numbers or 16 personality types or 34 signature themes. That's Jason's favorite hobby right there. (laughs) What? You can't can't just weaponize assessments to put people in boxes? You can't weaponize assessments. Especially in the corporate world. That's not what you're meant to be for. So then let's back up then. So All of us have had an experience with receiving it. And now, of course, we offer it. For all of you, and then we'll default to Regina... Uh, because of her distinction of of the four of us on this call. But I'm curious, what do you say to people who feel like therapy is for other people or therapy or counseling or investing in yourself? Like, I don't need to invest in myself. I'm good. But I think sometimes there's like this, there's either a denial of suffering or a a fetishization of suffering. And, you know, so there's some, some people I feel like maybe like the 1950s stereotype of the World War II dad who didn't want to talk about his trauma mm. versus now there's almost a swing to the other side where that's all people want to talk about all the time and they don't know how to see the world except through a lens of trauma. That's just what I feel like I'm observing and what, what's like the healthy center. The question that comes up for me, or maybe it's even a statement that I can turn into a question, but like for me, I don't think anybody is exempt from therapy. I, I really believe that. I think that no matter where you are, there is healing to be done in your life. And if, if you feel like you've gotten to a point where there is no healing to be done, I would, I would make a hypothesis that you're not stretching yourself enough. Yeah. So, so Regina, what do you think about that? I love that. I think that's really, I think that's really true. I, I firmly believe my worldview is that there's like one life and, you know, as human beings, we're really meaning makers. Like we make meaning out of experience. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. Therapy and coaching are kind of those avenues to invest in that meaning because why would you want to live your life subconsciously or unconsciously? Is that really life? Regina, is that how you would define or embedded in that I'm hearing a working definition of what healing is? I've been wondering about this a lot. Like, what does it mean to heal? Uh, And it sounds like I'm going to paraphrase what I think you're saying and then you can add or tweak or modify it. uh, Where healing is the becoming more aware more more integrated of the subconscious and integrating it into your awareness? Is that how you define that? 
Yeah, I think that's good. And also on top of that is like making conscious decisions of how we want to live our lives with meaning, right? So it's, it's, that's that outcome. So it's, you know, making that awareness, but then not, not because, right. We can have all the insight in the world and never yes. do anything about well, yeah. it. Yeah. And there's like, and, and at least in the coaching work, and I, I think there's probably a lot of overlap here in the coaching work. We have a huge passion for agency. Yeah. This is kind of an aha for me. I don't, I didn't realize or haven't thought about how integrating the unconscious or the subconscious or the conscious gives you more freedom of choice, gives you more agency because now your subconscious yeah. isn't running you. Exactly. I think that's like when I uh, like going through either the miscarriages or the divorce, like there's so many things subconsciously that are running me either the, the trauma or past memories, past experiences, like, ah, why am I behaving this way? Why is this triggering this emotion? Why all of a sudden is this coming out? And it is the therapy place was like, Hey, this is what's going on. And that person gets to ask questions and we explore it to get, like it does bring a mindfulness to it. And then I can create new meaning sometimes around some of those experiences that then is helpful for moving forward so that I'm, I'm, I'm in, I have the agency of writing my story really, and not the story then running me. Yeah. Regina, what would you say? So like one of my clients, him and I have talked several times about his past and he hints that there's these really painful moments from his past. And I'll ask him questions about it. And he's like, I don't want to go there. And, and that's fine. You know, I, we're not going to force anybody to go anywhere. But I think there's, if I was to put words in his mouth, I think that he would say, if I go there, it's going to be too much. Yeah. And so, I'm gonna fall apart. Uh-huh. and mm-hmm. so I'm curious, Regina, like what, how would you respond? Not as a coach, because as a coach, I'm not going to go there. That's not where we're going. That's not, I'm not certified or trained to play in that space necessarily. And I have encouraged him to seek out people who would be able to walk with him in an eloquent way through some of that stuff. How would you address that if someone, because I think one of the reasons why they mm-hmm. deny that they have any suffering for the people who aren't on the, on the romanticizing trauma, but on the denial of trauma, part of it is because we're scared if we go mm-hmm. there, what's going to happen or if we're going to come out or is it going to ruin us or wreck us? Like, can you offer some perspectives on that? I think that's definitely something I've heard a lot. And it's really about, two things. Okay. The first thing I think is saying, what I would say is, you know what, you don't have to go all the way there. And I'm here. My job is to make sure that you don't fall apart. I want you working. I want you thriving. I want you to be conscious with your family. Will you trust me that I'm walking with you on this, that I'm going to only lead you where I think we both can agree that you can go. But at the same time, aren't you seeing the effects of that in your life? Can we bring this to conscious awareness that we could put this on a to-do list and we're going to break it down in small, easily digestible steps so that you can function. At the same time, it's like a, any kind of infection, you know, and I, I would lead that discussion where, where let's, let's face reality, right? Where is that infection grown? Where it, has it robbed you of some opportunities to live your life the way you wanted to live it. The therapeutic paradigm is there, you mentioned kind of breaking up into bite-sized chunks. Is there part of the training of knowing how to walk with someone so where it doesn't destroy them? Absolutely. I mean, I think, Amanda, you know, you've talked about trauma-informed care and trauma-based. I mean, I think David Mm -hmm. too, you've done EMDR. So absolutely, there's a lot of interventions and techniques that do break it down. And I appreciate my therapist that I have now. She's very trauma-informed and she always asks permission for everything. So like, do I have permission to do this? Do we have permission to go there? And so I feel I'm not going anywhere that I don't want to go. I am in charge the whole time. At any time I want to tap out, I can tap out. But I appreciate the constant asking permission. Yeah, that is interesting. And I wonder sometimes in contrast, even I'm reading a book right now that's going to be released. Uh, It's written by someone I really respect and it shares a story about him having a really powerful coaching experience and it broke him for like six months. And he got depressed, he quit his job, all these kinds of things. It's part of his journey. And and I use the word coaching in quotes. It was like this, I don't know what, I don't know how else to describe it, but it was like some kind of helping experience. Another person was a facilitating experience for him and it just broke him. I heard that and I think about even like with ayahuasca and psilocybin as those are becoming uh, more, I don't want to call it mainstream yet, but the interest in it certainly is, is becoming louder. And I think one of my thoughts around it, like maybe even concerns is the lack of care for whether it breaks a person 
because I, I make up that you can't, when you induce a substance, you can't control. That's part of the reason why you're doing it. And actually, I'm really curious, Regina, do you have any opinions about different experiences that are meant to help you but can possibly break you? And I'd love to hear if you have any wisdom to share about that. I have a lot of opinions about the use of microdosing and psilocybin and ayahuasca because it is such a it's such a trend, right? And I think it's fascinating. There's a lot of good research in terms of how some of these, like psilocybin, it's part of the NIH study. I think it can kind of expand that consciousness, but at the same time, you have to understand it's an artificial substance that's entering into your body. Like you said, that you don't have control over. So I'm not a fan in that regard. I think it's a little weird too, to like go to these indigenous communities and like take some and corporatize them and market it. And I just have a lot of ethical issues around that. But anyways, is part of your ethical issues, and this is becoming more and more popular, and, and, and I think it's important for us to wrestle with it wisely, and I'm not like a hard anti-person, like I'm not, and, and maybe we can bring you on another time to have a longer conversation around it, but like, because I don't want to be hard against things yeah. just because they're foreign or different, but at the same time, I do want us to engage wisely right. with things, and so as part of your hesitation, even the way you mentioned that is almost like, I don't want to say appropriating, but people kind of going in and mishandling something culturally, is, is that part of it? Or what, what would you say is, is some of the caution from you? I think the caution, so I'll separate psilocybin. Psilocybin. See, I always add the L at Y. Psilocybin. I might need some. But the ayahuasca trip would be different. I mean, I think that's because it it is seems embedded in culture and it's kind of this like escape. It's just like an exotic trip, you know, like there's all these trends that I think that happen. And I would just say, why not invest in a coach or a therapist that that is here, that's on the ground, that can walk you through step by step. And you can take it into the real world. I don't know how much you can take that. I know a lot of people will disagree with me, but I don't know how much of that you experience you can actually take to your real world. That's like fantasy projection, not here in the day-to-day. So I do think the yeah. work, the investment, I think should be directed more real life yeah, on the ground, more grounded. And we can get to something maybe a little less controversial in terms of, well, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just, so breath work, like breath work's become really popular, like even in our firm. And one of my foundational dogmas, I guess, is what are healthy ways of, of expressing something and what are unhealthy ways of expressing something. And if you're not aware of the unhealthy way of expressing something, you're, you're, almost certainly either in danger of doing it that way or or you are doing it that way. So like, do, do you, have you been exposed to breath work or have you, and do you have an opinion about how that works and how it may not work with people in terms of a pursuit of wholeness? Yeah, no, thanks for the segue into my mindfulness work. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so, um, you know, if we, I think, I think what's been exciting when we were talking about kind of therapy history. So it, it's been a very cognitive kind of way of doing therapy in the last 20 years. And I think we're moving away from that. And that's, I think, because of the mindfulness, um, what's called third wave behavioralism. So what mindfulness and breath work have in common is this idea that your body and your mind, and I would venture your soul are all connected. So if you if you tap into one, it's going to affect the other. I think before in therapy, it was all about just the mind or the psyche, which is hard to define. And maybe we can credit like the psilocybin and ayahuasca's to some of this kind of movement (laughs) into body work, right? Which is, and I think EMDR has been around for a long time. Well, Mm -hmm. I used to, I was interning at the VA, um, working with vets and we, that was when the trend of EMDR was coming in. So this idea that your eye movement can affect the way you think, right? And just your breath, just everyone take a pause and take a deep breath. It just feels so good. So I could get into the, you know, the mechanisms, but you know, our bodies yeah. really do signal our parasympathetic and um, our feelings yeah. are generated through our bodies, not just our thoughts. And by the way, so I'm, I'm playing, I feel like a little bit of the role of the skeptic in this conversation, but the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, I feel like these are words that unless you're in the industry or, or even maybe over the age of 50, they sound like made up words. Like they sound like, they sound like even, you know, ayahuasca, you said it's embedded in culture and it comes with it oftentimes with a kind of a packed in cosmology, mm-hmm. the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system kind of sounds like a made up thing, like a third eye 
or something, a metaphor that we use. And could you could you speak that a little bit? Because I, I want our listeners, as they're getting exposed to new words, to know that this isn't like just things that people are making up. Yeah, yeah. So let's just take an example. Do you think about your heart beating? Do you think no. about breathing? Well, there is a part of your brain that is thinking about it and regulating it through the nervous system. And that would be the parasympathetic system. You're not actively thinking about it. Like Amanda, did you think about growing your babies in your body? Nope. They just grew. Your body knew what to do. So there's some things that are automatic that are humming in the background. And that's parasympathetic, you know? And, and I think the important thing is we have different systems in our bodies. Again, coming back to that conscious and unconscious kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. It's like nearsighted and farsighted. Like the, the terms aren't necessarily helpful in you yes. understanding what they are. Yeah. So if, if parasympathetic is all the things that happen subconsciously, yes, like breathing and heartbeat and those types of things, what's sympathetic? Well, sympathetic is definitely the more consciously driven parts of our nervous system that does go into mental health. So the more anxiety you have, the more of your endocrine system, your adrenaline... I I will just, let me preface this by saying, I don't have my MD. So I will say Ah, there's a limit to that part. But what I do know, and some of the research I've done is um, how does mindfulness, which includes breath work, activate kind of the vagal nerve responses comes from Stephen Porges's work, right? And and a lot of this breath work people that, and, and so there is a connection there. And so last little nerdy detail is this is where we're coaching and therapy do this, which is we help people emotionally regulate, right? Mm -hmm. We help people through the thick and thin that they can kind of stay steady. And that's a measure called heart rate variability. And it, it goes into kind of that parasympathetic automatic system. So people who are more emotionally stable, what we would maybe call resilient, are actually, their parasympathetic system is very strong, but they're able to self-regulate very easily through threat. That's fascinating. So so like for now, right now, I'm seeing a therapist and it's mostly entirely talk therapy. He sits there, he doesn't say necessarily a whole lot. I'm talking a lot. Oftentimes I'll say that coaching is a form of meditation because we're training our clients to pay attention to the meaning they're making. And so, and that, and that in and of itself is like a form of mindfulness. And then, or like guided mindfulness. And I, I'd imagine you would say something similar to like mindfulness counseling or mindfulness therapy. Does consciously paying attention to what you're talking about activate or calm the parasympathetic nervous system? Yeah. I mean, I think it activates it. And actually what I think therapy does, and we could say coaching as well as it, it's actually rewiring your system. It's actually rewiring your, your brain patterns, right? And that's, you know, we're reinforcing through talking. Um, I will do stuff like I've, I've had people just talk at me and just dump. Right. And I, Mm -hmm. and I kind of stop that because I think we have to get out of just the intellectual. Yes. Right. Like, let's just think, 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 Mm -hmm. how about, how is this affecting you? Right. That's kind of what you're saying. How is this? Let's think about the thoughts that you're having. Right. Let's be aware. It's that meta awareness. Um, which can lead to meta performance. Do you see, see what I did there? Thank you, Regina. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's almost as if it helps people go beyond high performance. Yes. <laughs> and actually, just just real quick, Regina, how would you? Because I remember, I remember. Uh, by the way, Regina and Amanda are really yeah. good friends, and I, every now and then, yes. I, I am fortunate to be able to hang out with Regina as well. And I remember talking about this. What, what would you say are the similarities of coaching and therapy, and what would you say are the distinctives of coaching and therapy? Because they are different. We recommend our clients see therapists oftentimes as a result of our work. Yeah, I mean, I think the clearest distinction is when you get into mental health coaching. You probably don't want to touch right depression, anxiety, trauma. That's therapy. And it's not like therapists don't do coaching in the middle of that, right? right? And just like Mm -hmm. coaches wouldn't do some therapy, maybe some like, but we talked about the word, but that's, I think that's the big line, which is, you know, understanding the ramifications of what mental health issues could potentially, where you do harm, right? Where, where we do harm and where as coaches, you might want to refer because it's, it could, it could be more harmful, yeah. Or oftentimes, and I'm, I, I'm not asking you to agree with this. I'm going to see what you think about it. I'd love for you to, if you don't agree, I'd love to, some pushback on that so I can learn something. Oftentimes we'll say that therapy oftentimes deals with the past 
and the narrative you have about the past and coaching, we try to orient more towards the future. I'm not going to necessarily have a conversation about their history. I'm going to have a conversation about their imagination towards the future. And then when I discover that their past is becoming an inhibitor towards them creating the future, I'll say, hey, I might recommend you go talk to somebody because you're carrying this thing that that is becoming an inhibitor to you creating the relationship or the career or the company that you want to create. And it's not just going to go away. And so there are people who are better at navigating your history than I am. Is that a fair distinction? Or do you feel like that's a false dichotomy that coaches say to make themselves feel better about coaching? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far because I try to be fair. But I will say the past is the present for people when they're dealing with emotional issues. You can't really distinguish the two right? When they're having a conversation, maybe they're leading a team or they're having someone yell at them and they're having a reaction. That's, that's the past coming into the present. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily make that distinction, but I think what's fair is, right, you're not going to get into their family history, attachment issues, biological, genetic issues, you know, like you're not going to deal with that stuff. But at the same time, neither is it correct to say that therapists only talk about the past. I think Right. That's a very maybe past Freudian model, but although he would probably argue you're still, you have transference account. Anyways, long story short, I wouldn't even make a time difference. You know, in the emotional state of people, trauma doesn't feel like the past. There is no distinction. These lines of time, it's like inception. What's what's the dream within the dream? There, it's just all together. So I I don't think that's a useful. And this is shifting a little bit without the clutch. We mentioned at the very now. beginning the idea of this is something that usually the affluent would, would engage in. And sometimes I wonder too, it's like, oh yeah, sure, you can hire a coach, you can hire a therapist. That's easy for you to say. And, not, and sometimes I think not only is it the money cost, but it's the time cost that a lot of people who are in different socioeconomic statuses feel unable to do. Could you speak a little bit to how you would encourage people to navigate things if they're ever tempted to say... I don't have the time or I don't have the money to engage in these types of things that can help me grow. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's kind of like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you're in survival mode, then you you really don't want to invest in that kind of higher level self-sexualization sort of need. But I would just say, if you invest in those, I think you'll see that your survival skills get better. Like if you're just in survival mode, you're probably not as efficient um, emotionally I know that sounds weird to talk about it in those terms, but I think that's true. Here, here's how I want to say it. I'm, I'm naturally, I want to just be in my pool and like take naps and have a lot of time, like not be in survival mode. So what is the most efficient way to do my work, right? What's the most efficient way to get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. You'll find that that investment of time, actually, it's like time multiplies. Again, if you go with my theory instead of Jason's theory of like time isn't really a factor, then you see that you're, the work that you're investing in actually is the job that you should be doing. I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, it does. Well, actually, I was reading recently that I'm never a huge fan of like linear models of healing or growth. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs is is incredibly linear. And I read recently that even Maslow was upset about how it got turned into this linear process and how that's affected our social theory and how we care for people and even policies we pass is you can't actualize until you have certain Mm -hmm. things versus saying, no, it's all, it's a nonlinear process and having as much self-actualization as you can experience, even if you don't have your survival needs met, can actually help you learn to deal with your survival needs. Have you heard of that? Have you been exposed to that? I mean, I'm not saying this is a prevalent idea, but I've never been a huge fan of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a linear process. Absolutely. I don't think things are, let's just use an example. I think our national conversation about racism, right? And just thinking about how the effects of some of survival is really, you know, maybe could be built into certain structures or patterns of life. So let's say it's a corporation. If you're not even thinking about those things, if you're not even, you know, in, not enlightened, but I would just say aware, right? Just awareness, then you're shooting yourself in the foot because it's not even necessarily economic for people or, you know, we have lots of different research. Again, going back to the conversation, humans are complicated. There is no linear way of growth. And we have a lot of capacities that I think we're not always aware of that. Yeah. So with social work, 
and forgive me if this is a, a, a not the right way of looking at this. Oftentimes I look at social work as a service that is afforded to people who don't always have the resources to hire a high-end coach or hire a high-end therapist or go and drive to a fancy office and sit on a couch in uptown wherever. First of all, is that accurate? Is is that one of the gifts that society gives folks who can't afford it? Is social work is an apparatus for that purpose? Yes. I think that's what differentiates us between like psychologists or LMFTs. I think we do tend to work in kind of government or public settings. There are a lot of us in private practice actually too. So when you see a therapist, they're often, especially if you're on the East Coast, they're often LCSWs. We just have a lot of LMFTs here on the West Coast. Um, I don't want to offend my LMFT colleagues, but um, my students know. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> But I will just say that is your, I, I like the way you put that, Jason. I think that's the investment that we make in our society um, to hire people who are more affordable and access to care is really important conversation. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of, that's to my end, again, fighting against Maslow's, the kind of what's become the way that we understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When you're working with somebody who would, would identify maybe the bottom of the pyramid what does self-actualization look like for someone who's at the bottom of the pyramid? It's the same, right? They just don't have the same resources, right? They don't have the same time resource or money. But I have, I will just say, again, humans are endlessly fascinating. I mean, the people that I would say are the lowest of the low are the most wise and the most resourceful in so many different ways. And I think a lot of us, who maybe are in the more affluent sectors should rub shoulders and and really be open to listening and learning because I think through their eyes, you tend to see also kind of the structural inequities. I think, again, I come back to that because that is the training in social work. We don't look at just the individual. We look at how it's called person environment. How does a person interact within the mesosphere and these smaller group community spheres? And then how does society impact? And, and it's, it, I mean, I think that the discussions are way more, way more open. And so that's why I think you're seeing less stigma as well, that we're having these broader conversations about how the structures in place affect our mental health, really that we can't as individuals just fight some of these things on our own and expect to come out okay, that we're kind of hit and damaged by them sometimes. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I guess this will be the last question. Regina, how would you say? I'll actually I'll ask I'll ask Gerber and Amanda the same question, but um, we'll start with you, Regina. How should a person identify when they know that they need some support? And let's just, let's stay with therapy just for a second. So, for people who are listening to this, probably most of them who are listening to this know about us and our work, and they know about coaching, and they know about maybe maybe even they have a coach. How, how would you know when you need or would be good to talk to a therapist? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some basic signs. Are you not eating and sleeping like you normally would? Is your motivation just a little lower? Are you ruminating about a really negative thought that just won't turn off? And also, again, all the body signs. A lot of your listeners probably are so good at compartmentalizing your emotions, but it's going to show up in your body. You're going to have bad skin or you've gained weight, or you've lost a lot of weight, or you've lost hair, and you can't, you know, you're you're getting medical diagnoses, and there's no real explanation. That's wonderful. Amanda and Gerbis, what would you say when you're working with clients? What would make you suggest that they either, either, I had one client that I said, hey, look, we, we worked for the other for a very short amount of time, but I was like, hey, uh, I don't think coaching is a good fit for you. I think that therapy would be a better fit for you. So whether it's uh, replacing and we stop that contract and then I, I introduce him to some people I trusted or whether it's an augmentation, which is right now I have a coach and a therapist because I have all sorts of time and money apparently. Uh, Amanda, <laughs> what, would you, what, would, what would you two say about how would you encourage someone to think about it? I appreciated the conversation around the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So having clients where they just, are they having a really hard time uh, activating that parasympathetic nervous system. Like they can't calm themselves down. Like a lot of my clients are super high performing and going, 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 going. And you're right, like the ruminating thoughts or they know that there aren't resourceful beliefs. They know that they're coming from somewhere, but they're having just a really hard time making that shift because it's like just something is like holding it like in, in their bodies. And so for me, that's when for myself, 
noticing that when I can't calm myself down or I'm noticing that those those beliefs are very clearly getting in the way of me taking action and no amount of just like thinking through. It's like there's something else going on. I can't think my way out of this. And that's when I go to therapy or that's when I might recommend it uh, with a client of having um, another space to like deal with like the next level of it. Um, and for me, they work very synergistically together. I use my therapist oftentimes like a coach. Coaching, sometimes there is some therapy, com- but there those spaces work really synergistically for me. And I, I would probably encourage my clients to, to use that as the same. Yeah. Yeah. Gerbs, how about you? Uh, a few things come up to mind for me. Um, one kind of similar to Amanda, where the coaching I find to be like, can be more of a performative space. And if you've got a very high performing clients, I think it's good for them if I sense, hey, I think it'd be good for you to have a space where it's not performative at all. It's like, you're not trying to like hit yeah. some objective and the agenda. You know, it's just like for you to be in that conversation with yourself, which kind of leads to the second point of like, if I sense a client isn't good at at feeling, and I know this is kind of like a different topic in coaching spaces where some, some coaches I, I know completely discount feelings, which I think is detrimental. And so if I sense that a client isn't like uh, adept at feeling well, then sometimes I will, I'll direct them because I was like, hey, I think that your, your, your um, emotional intelligence around your feelings is getting in your way. Then I'll, I'll suggest that. And then the last thing I'll say is I had this metaphor recently. I was talking to my parents and, and I really liked it. I, I don't know if it will travel here, but, but it was this idea that I feel like, again, I, kind of what I was saying earlier is I don't think anybody's exempt from healing. And I had this idea that it's like you have this glass jar of like stuff that's gone on in your life and different things from out, throughout your life. And you either decide at some point to open that jar up and address it, or you you don't open that jar up. You you leave it. Um, but but make no mistake, for me, it's like if you don't ever address the stuff in your in your world that's slowing you down, it does have an impact on you and a, an impact on others. And um, and and so there's no way there's no way around that. And I've had really good conversations with family members um, and friends to say, hey, your unwillingness to address that does impact our relationship. And I don't, that's not meant to be an insult. It's meant to be like, Hey, I'd really love for you to open that jar and heal from some of these things that are, that are in your way. And hopefully I'm an example of that, right? Like hopefully I'm, I'm opening the jar and consistently going and, and doing the healing with that, that I feel like I need to do so that that's not inhibiting what, what I'm up to in the world in terms of relationships and, and uh, business and impact. So that's, that's, those are the kind of things I look for when I'm thinking about if a client has like sense that that would be helpful for them, that space, I'll definitely recommend that at a high level. And Regina, hearing that, any any yeah buts or be aware ofs or affirmations from from Amanda and Gerber's answers, I'd love for you to run those through your filter. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, I loved Amanda's thing about not being able to turn it off. I think that's really great. And the performance thing, I could really see related to that. Because again, it's that intellectual thing. Are, are people too intellectualized that they're not aware? You know, they've kind of... Um, instead of integrated, they disintegrated themselves. They've kind of broken their lives up into different parts. And I think a lot of therapies about synergy work, maybe coaching too, we want to bring our whole selves to life. Regina, is there ever, under what circumstances, I don't want to put you on the spot, even though I have with just about every question that I've asked, but (laughs) under what circumstances would you recommend someone who's seeing a therapist to see a coach? Is there any circumstance Mm -hmm. where you'd recommend that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think sometimes, okay, so I'll criticize my field a little bit. I don't think we're really good at navigating workplace dynamics and because a lot of us don't really do that. You know, we're not leaders typically. We're practitioners. We're we're meeting people one on one. So I actually I was thinking about this before this podcast, and I was thinking, you know, this is a weakness. We're really not business savvy. <laughs> Sorry for all the therapists that are some of them are okay. There's always a few, and they're on Instagram, and they're fabulous, and they're wonderful. Great, great business. But we're really not good at the. We're kind of in our own little world, you know, like we're in our own little monkey world. And I just don't think we get, we don't see the big picture of, of corporate America and that culture. We don't understand what meta performance really means. Like, I just don't think we live in that space. So I would just say a lot of your listeners, it is good to have a coach. Cause I just think you're going to hit a limit with us 
therapists because we haven't navigated those spaces in the same way. You know what's funny about that, Regina, is oftentimes I have the same critique of coaches. Huh. So, so I appreciate you being vulnerable about your own industry. And so I'd like to, to meet you there. Like oftentimes, I'll let you fill in the blanks for how this applies to therapy, but oftentimes, and maybe we can beat up our respective industries for a few minutes and that'll be interesting to people. But oftentimes I find this is a caricature, you know, so if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But people get into coaching because they end up hating the corporate space. And so they leave to get into coaching. And then the only clients they can have because of their experience is in the corporate space. So you have these people who hate the environment they left coaching the environment that they left. And I find that to be suspicious, I think is a fair word to say. Or, or another way I oftentimes say is people leave corporate America because they hate working on teams because they didn't have the skills to navigate that well. And then they end up coaching people on teams. And it's kind of like, like just be full disclosure. So I'm divorced and I don't do marriage coaching. <laughs> you know, not, not that I couldn't get trained and you know, those types of things. But I, I just assume that whatever operating system I had that didn't make my marriage work probably is going to leak in some way into my coaching of spouses in some way. And I know it's not always that way. You know, I'm sure there's ways of getting around that, but to have some humility around that. And one of the things that I really love about our firm is that we are coaches who uh, didn't leave corporate America to get away from teams. Mm-hmm. We actually are on teams ourselves as fellow coaches and so what we have to practice with ourselves, we bring into our coaching clients. And I say that mostly to say that, that Regina, I, I appreciate you sharing that about therapists. And sometimes I have the same concern, maybe is a good word, the same concern about all these people getting into coaching is um, they don't understand the very things that they are trying to help with. Yep, yep. Now I will, can I say a caveat really quick? I yeah, don't please. think it's necessarily healthy. So maybe a differentiation because um, we're talking about mental health on the therapy side, that it's always a good idea to f- have a therapist who's walked that same walk through whatever trauma. I don't think it necessarily applies there um, because yep. right, we we need a, sometimes a little distance in order to care for someone. Yep. Well, and I, and I, I would say the same thing to talk out of both sides of my mouth just for a second. Like one of my clients right now, we're, we're talking about him becoming a world-class husband. And, you know, I'm, I'm not coming with a definition of what a world-class husband is, but I am holding a space for him to discover that and co-create that with his spouse. And that's most of our coaching is about his business, but he wanted to, to talk about him becoming awesome at everything. And then husbandry is one of the things he's into. But, but also... Regina, when I when we go there, I say just a heads up. I'm happy to go into the space with you, and you should know my history, so that you can take that for what it's worth. And and then we play, you know. And so, but it's also very non-prescriptive. I'm not telling him what he should or shouldn't do. I'm just holding the same kind of coaching space I would for any other area of his life. So it's a little bit different. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, like I don't know if I would bring to my therapist, hey, I want to start a business. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, um, right. Yep. I, I mean, I could, we could talk about as I'm starting the business, the thoughts that are getting in my way about failure and the messages that I received as a kid and where I feel that in my body and going back to all of those things, but I'm not setting outcomes and making commitments around actually starting that business, I mean, I might like, it's like, I'm going to make that phone call, uh, you know, yeah. when we talk about that and maybe that might come up, but I don't, I don't expect my therapy. But however, like I, cause with coaching, we talk about the importance of ROI. And I do even think about therapy that way for myself. If I'm making this investment and there is an ROI and an impact in my business, because if my trauma is getting in the way and I don't have the motivation to do things, then I'm not going to reach out and send that email or make that call or show up powerfully in whatever situation. And so to me, it's like it, there is an ROI there for me um, with therapy. But yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think I would bring to my therapist how to like, help me help me make more money or that kind of thing how to write my book or whatever yeah. <laughs> um well you know it's funny so then so i hire a coach to help me take my life to the next level however you define that and then once i get there there's all these changes and my um, my emotions don't know yes. how to deal with the positive changes that i've created in my life and to be full disclosure that's the reason why i talk to my therapist now is my life has radically changed in the last two to four years socioeconomically relationally all these shifts have happened and there's 
I'm curious, Regina, if you would agree with this word. I don't know what other word to use other than there's like a trauma of success because yes. there's this change. I did it. Hmm. I, I I made these choices. Hmm. I you know generated all these things or whatever in tandem hmm. with the team and all that kind of thing. But now my life is different. And there's like a grief. This is my experience of it. And I'm curious, Regina, what you think about this. Like there's a grief of what was, even though what was isn't as good as what is now, there's still all this drastic change that happened that I'm having to deal with or not having to, but choosing to deal with. And so I use my therapist to, as, for him to hold a gentle space for me to talk through yes. all the changes that have happened in my life. Now I'm going to put a period there. I'd love to put your therapist hat on Regina, if you're up for it. And like, what do you hear? What do you, is that an appropriate way to use therapy? How, how would you interact with that? I'll psychoanalyze you a bit, Jason. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, um, I don't know if it's a trauma. It sounds like you're catching up a little bit. Yeah. You know, your body has to catch up. Your mind has to catch up. And then you're also catching up in terms of trying to make meaning of what this means for you. You mm. probably didn't envision your life yes. going this direction. So maybe there's grief there because we always grieve what's we know, what's comfortable. Because again, if human beings are meaning making, that's all we knew. We can't yes. imagine beyond what we know. So yeah. So I think you're catching up. So then maybe a better way of saying it, and I, I hear you gravitating more towards grief versus trauma. Maybe we should use the word trauma for a more specific frame of reference. So rather than the trauma of success, we could call it the grief of success. I like that. That makes me real curious then. How would you define trauma? Yeah. So trauma, I think is, especially as we look at in the diagnostic sense, there's actually really set criteria, but it does have to do with having something from the outside really affect you in your mind. You might ruminate, you might have nightmares. Basically trauma elicits that fight, flight, or freeze. And it really, it's, it's more than just meaning. It's, it really gets in the way, right? It, it gets in the way. It's, I would just say not just trauma, Jason, but mm -hmm. any kind of mental health issue. If you can't function at your job, if you can't function at your home life, then there is a mental health diagnosis. So if you're functioning and you're doing well, it admits that that might not be diagnosable. Because I do, okay, I will take issue. Sometimes we are talking about trauma a lot more, mm -hmm. but I don't like to conflate trauma because I think it does take away from people who have had trauma. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be at a, at a war. I'm yeah. just saying, let's not gaslight victims of real trauma. Yeah, that's so. Could you also say generalize? The more general, the more generalized or vague that word becomes, yeah. the more we tend to misuse it. And then people who, so then, okay, so if there's like a, let's say there's like a trauma spectrum, at the far right is like war and domestic sexual abuse, those types of things, like these very punctuated moments of, of violence. What would you say is in the middle? And by the way, I'm not expecting you to have thought through this and have a cohesive thing, but if you want to kick it around, what would you say is in the middle? And then what, what, what words should we use for the middle gray stuff? And then the stuff that isn't even remotely close to trauma that people are tending to use as a catch-all phrase for all those things? Yeah. So there is a diagnosis called acute stress. Okay. So hmm. I would maybe say that would be in the middle. But I mean, I, I don't want to put rules in terms because some people like, you know, Amanda, and you've mentioned divorce, that can be very traumatizing. Absolutely. That can absolutely be a traumatic thing. It just depends on circumstances and how, how it was done, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. there is a category, I would just say acute stress, like that can really send you into kind of fight, flutter, freeze, but you're not mm -hmm. long-term impacted in your job. There's still an ROI to use Amanda's words of, yeah. you know, just day-to-day -day living. You can get through life not getting through life is a sign of real trauma. If you're posting on Instagram about your trauma, you're probably not as, or maybe that's a trauma response, yeah, but if you're yeah, crafting yeah. good Canva posts about Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I've just attacked the Instagram community. So now now that's bad. Well, <laughs> and, well and, but I, I get your point and I think you're kidding. You're, there's a little bit of a joking there and we can, we can have that comment be a source of levity that it was intended to be. And I think there's kind of that point of we become performative Yes. It's like trauma. That's, trauma, that's the best. Right. Kind of a thing. Best term for it. So going back to the spectrum, just to put a period on that. So you've got on the far end, you've got trauma in the middle, you've got acute stress. What would you, what would you call mild something? My adjustment. Adjustment. So there is a category called adjustment disorders, ad adjustment, um, 
a lot of the folks that you probably work with might have, and I'm not, I'm, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. but might have like an adjustment disorder of anxiety. So maybe they got fired. Yeah. You know, or, and, yeah. or promoted or promoted. Promote, right. Right. Or maybe, you know, you might fall in that category, Jason, of this is adjustment, right? You're mm-hmm. going to get through it. It's an yep. adjusting season. That's, so adjustment, I think that's acute stress, PTSD. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. That, hopefully that's interesting for our listeners as well. I find that to be really interesting and then discerning because my guess is then whether it's adjustment anxiety or if it's, uh, what was the middle one? Acute, acute stress. stress. Acute stress or trauma, there are going to be different solutions. Right. For that, for that spectrum right. and that continuum. That's, I think that's a lot of fun. Thank you for, for dancing with that. All yeah. right. And, and I saw your thing. Can I get you for one more question? Absolutely. Cause I asked it and then I'd be curious for all of us to answer. So I want to talk about healing just for a second. And part of it is I'm fascinated because a lot of people are using that word is also becoming more and more common, trying to heal, pursuing healing. This, the, the word healing in the zeitgeist is going up. Google searches for healing. The, mm-hmm. I think as we become more, more as a society, as we become more affluent, uh, then we can uh, focus more attention on healing. And so tools, are, a whole market for healing is like the healing industrial complex, whether it's supplements, all this stuff is emerging. And I think we can be cynical about that a little bit, but also it's not a horrible thing. You know, I mean, it's a good thing to talk about. And then also, because uh, my name, uh, Jason, means healing. And I never liked that as a kid. I thought that it was like soft or like, it's not mm-hmm. like tough, you know, kind of a thing. And so I had my own journey with my own name and what that means. Is there a clinical definition of what healing is? Or if you were to make up a clinical definition on the spot, how would you define healing? So what, what gets talked about in my field, and it's fascinating to hear this from you, Jason, that this is something that's in the zeitgeist, because I've been talking a lot about healing just in my own thoughts of mm-hmm. and being a healer and, mm-hmm. and um, how healing is the goal in therapy. But I would maybe even just borrowing from 12-step, you know, this idea of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know the side of heaven that we're going to ever be completely healed, um, I think it's something we long for because we know that there's a place where that's going to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think it's possible. I I actually, I've seen it. And what that looks like is beautiful. I mean, it's, you know, I think we all recognize it when we see it and feel it. I would love for you to drill a little bit into that. And here's why, especially when there's a whole industrial complex around it. Mm. Someone can go through an experience and say that was really healing. Sometimes what they mean is I feel better now. You know, right. so does does Advil heal you of your headache right. or does it mask your headache? And if a person has a broken arm and they're in a lot of pain and then you give them morphine, did that heal their broken arm? You know, so could what what is the evidence because uh, and by the way, just for our listeners, it didn't heal the broken arm. Their arm is still broken, <laughs> you know, but they are not experiencing pain, and therefore they might say that they're healed. Go ahead, Amanda, before Regina gives an well, answer. Well, yeah, I was just gonna say, nor does healing mean going back to how it was, because I think a lot of times it's like I want to feel better or I want to go back to how things were before whatever change mm-hmm. or whatever trauma. But like your mm-hmm. your arm has been broken, like it might heal and it can heal fantastically, but there's still going to be a little bit of a scar there or it might be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but it still has healed. Functional. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. And not to, not to be antagonistic to what you just said, Regina, but the word recovery means to take back. It does mean to mm-hmm. go back. And, and, and maybe I'm getting in the linguistic weeds here, but, but it's not to, it, it's for a point because I'm trying to understand what this means mm-hmm. as we help people towards healing. So Regina, back to my initial question, what's like the list of possible ways of knowing when a person has healed or has recovered or is whole? On the therapist side, I think there's a lot of signs there. Again, it's, it is that functionality. I like that analogy that Amanda, you know, gave us, which is, are you functioning in your social Mm. or occupational life again? Mm. Um, And okay. Can I, can I segue a little bit and come back? Cause this industrial complex thing, Mm because I do, I have a bone to pick about self-care industry, which Mm -hmm. is just add more things on your list to do. (laughs) Like I did a post of like, this is my self-care. I'll sit on the bed and eat an apple and look out the window. There's no to-do list. Let's get (laughs) off the checkoff list performance again and just be. So I think healing, there is an element of that, which is 
I'm okay with who I am. I think I'm valuable because I'm valuable, Mm -hmm. not because of what I do, not because of what people say about me, not because of the achievements I made, but just because I'm Regina, just because I'm David, just because I'm Amanda, just because I'm Jason, that I'm, I'm valuable. I'm not just okay. I mean something to this world and to the people around me. Yeah. Well, I like that. And there's two things I hear there. One is a subjective experience of well-being. And I think going back to your book, uh, you know, mindfulness is a way of building well-being into your life. Uh, you know, and it's funny, like when people talk about psilocybin and ayahuasca, they talk about how like you can you can meditate for 10 years or you can do a trip. And I think that there's something to, frankly, I think there's something to the effort that goes into building wellness rather than chemically inducing it. Um, and, and again, I'm not trying to be anti something. Uh, I don't mind being anti it until we, until we find reasons to legalize it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I am kind of anti breaking the law, but I think there's something to the discipline that goes into, I can take a pill that makes me strong or I can work out every day to make me strong. And I think there's benefits there. And then the other thing I want to kick around with you is the functionality piece. So like where you can engage in relationships, you have the tools and resources to engage in relationships with the tools and resources to engage at work. Right. And I'm kind of thinking this through out loud. So forgive me for that. But is, is part of it then getting clear on because at some point you have to define what does it mean to engage in relationships well? And what does it mean to engage in work? Well, does that implicit in the healing journey from your perspective, Regina? And of course, I can invite Amanda and Gerber to comment on that as well from a coaching paradigm. I think it's actually really explicit, right? Because it's for one person, let's say, you know, I've had a client who was a brilliant writer and, but unfortunately suffered from a major mental health disorder. So, you know, functioning wasn't going to be winning the Pulitzer functioning was going to be writing every day, trying to get published you know, that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. awesome. Cause yeah. when you're fighting voices in your head every single day, mm-hmm. that is absolutely functioning. That is absolutely high performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, maybe some folks, you know, I have, <laughs> I know people who've been married multiple times, but they're highly functional at work. Yeah. So for them, it's, you know, maybe the relationship isn't going to, matter for you as much because your desire is to be at work and um, you know that you're going to rob your partner or whatever of of that time i don't know what you think about that when you're 60 or 80 but i do know what that might mean might mean for you know i, I think there's lots of people i might you know and as prof- there's a lot of single professors i'll just say that because mm. it's really a detriment to family life so you know, and there's something interesting about that too, and then we'll wrap up here, but there's a lot of single professors, there's a lot of single therapists, there's a lot of single coaches. And sometimes I wonder if we develop such rigid modalities of how the world is that it makes it incompatible for relationship because you have to find somebody who matches your exact modality in order to have a relationship with them. I, I remember working with coaches sometimes is a pain in the ass. And I say that as a precursor to say my least favorite training I've ever done was, was for a room full of therapists because they all knew everything already. And it was really difficult to have a conversation around what they didn't know. They didn't know because they have such a vast. And by the way, I think the same is true for any, any well-developed domain of expertise. Theologians are particularly obnoxious uh, therapists can be that way. Coaches can be that way. Doctors can be that way, you know, and it's like the more, the more robust a field of knowledge is, and the more you feel like you have a handle on the robustness of that domain, I think the more difficult it is to be in relationship with anyone. (laughs) I don't know if there's a question there either. It's just kind of an observation. It's humility, right? Like we just have to be humble enough to know that we have something to learn. Well, I think um, to that point, um, I think like as a coach, that's why I, I put myself in submission to a coach and I put myself in submission in the relationship to a therapist because I think that there is this, I can't do surgery on myself. And so like, I don't, I don't 
know if I'll ever be at a point in my life, like healed, whatever. But um, having somebody on the other side of me who is listening and who is holding space for me and who is giving feedback, I was just having a conversation uh, with my son. And I was like, do you want to go to therapy every week? And he's like, yes. And he was like, I'm sorry. Because he knows that it's effort to get him there. It's the financial. And it's like, dude, this is a non-negotiable. Like we've been through some stuff. This space is important. And I've also hired a coach for him. Um, because I, I want my kids to know that just this, the space of having somebody on the other side advocating for you. Um, I don't know if I ever want to be without that in my life. As I've been thinking about this, as I've heard you all talk about it a bit, it's like, I think there, I don't know if there's ever a point as a therapist, as a coach, as a doctor that you just like arrive. And I think when you show up in a relationship and you could say, listen, yeah, I'm a coach and, and I'm like track record wise, I'm a, I'm a really good, great coach. But then I like I'm messing relationships. And I think sometimes we have this expectation of either therapists or coaches that like you're not a human or something because you're a therapist. And it's like, man, it is so much different coaching somebody through something than going through it yourself. Yes. And I think if we can all just show up as you know humans and go, hey, I'm a human, I'm messy, um, and I still want to be in loving relationships. And let's see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and and you know, Phil Phil Jackson was one of the greatest basketball coaches in the history of the game and coach, you know, has tons of rings and he was not a particularly great basketball player. You know, there is a degree of, and sometimes, you know, I don't know if you experienced this Regina, but sometimes companies will come to us and they'll say, can we look at your coach roster? And they'll say, well, you don't have anybody who's run a billion dollar company. And so therefore, how can they know? And what's really interesting about that is I personally have coached several people running billion and multi-billion dollar companies and through our coaching, they've gone from one billion to four billion to five billion in revenue, and it's like, well, how did you know how to do that? And, and first of all, our our company is not a billion dollar company. Our company is not a hundred million dollar company. But it's just taking the tools. It's it's just taking the tools and playing together in a way that that we could not do for ourselves. As Amanda says, it's hard to do surgery on yourselves. And to Gerber's point, there's a great joy and humility that comes in the helping profession, and hopefully, a sign of health. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we say don't ever hire a coach who doesn't have a coach or maybe even don't hire a therapist who's ever been through therapy. As soon as you don't think that you don't need it, you're in danger of really abusing it. And so as a wrap up, uh, I want to thank you, Regina, for your time and for for your humility by hopping up with a bunch of us yahoos. Uh, you're You're the one with the PhD. And we're the ones who are trying to figure things out as we go. But um, we really have a deep respect for the work of therapy. It's been a gift to us in our lives. And you've been a gift uh, in my sister's life. And so thanks for thanks for being on our show. We'll have all the show notes about how you can get in contact with Regina if you want to explore what she's up to and read her book and all those things. So thank you, Regina. Thank you again. Appreciate this. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance. Thank you.